This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 426 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Branch Warren. Now, we discuss a host of topics from Branch's journey into lifting and bodybuilding to overcoming some pretty horrendous injuries and what he's doing now with Wicked Cuts Jerky. Now, in this discussion, you hear him describe how the jerky is made holistically. There's none of the chemicals put in there. But Branch actually sent me a box, a kind of gift box of his jerky. And I have to say, it really is incredible. It's clean. It tastes amazing. And then there's the one bag you hear him talking about that actually supports one of my favorite charities, Sons of the Flag. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment to go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I really do read your comments and love getting the feedback. And most importantly, leave a rating. Each five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library with well over 400 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Branch Warren. Enjoy. So, Branch, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thanks for having me on. So, looking forward to it, and uh, excited to uh, excited to talk to you. And I think it's going to be a little different, a uh, little different angle. I think so. Than, uh, than what's normal. Beautiful. Well, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I'm in Texas at uh, my home office uh, for Wicked Cuts in South Lake, Texas. Beautiful. Well, I know you've got an interesting early life, and it kind of ties around to to Wicked Cuts as well. So, tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Well, so I was born in Tyler, Texas, and uh, but I grew up in Seymour, Texas. That's where I call home. Um, small town. I probably I don't know if there's 2,500 people in it anymore. Maybe even smaller than that. Um, but uh, grew up on a cattle ranch. So, um, you know, when you grow up out there, there's nothing much to do. You know, I think you get older. There's the only thing you can do is drink beer and hunt. That's about all there is to do. So uh, it's a different way of, of growing up. I think it's a way of life that's uh, 
almost gone from, I think, uh, most people, you know, I got the opportunity to, you know, be a cowboy. Um, you know, we had horses, we had to round cattle up, you know, lots of the ranch wasn't accessible by vehicle. So, uh, you know, we did it the old way and, uh, it was pretty cool. Good way, um, good way to grow up. And, um, uh, I think when you grow up like that, you, um, I think you learn, you have to have common sense. And I think you grow up, you learn what hard work is at a very young age. And, uh, you realize that's just the way it is. And, um, you know, not, not working, not doing your chores is not an option. And, um, you know, I would have to get up. First thing I did when I came from school, I had chores I had to do, you know, the weekends I had to work. And, um, but you know, that's where you grow up. You don't know any different. You think everybody lives that way. So, uh, when I was in high school, we, uh, we moved to the Fort Worth area and, um, I came from a high school that we barely had enough, um, people to have a football team. I don't move to Fort Worth. Um, and this is back when, you know, you had to make the team. People actually got cut. Everybody didn't get a participation trophy. And so um, I knew if I was going to make the team, you know, I, I need to work out, get a little bigger, stronger, have a shot at, you know, playing. So I had no money. Um, I met this local kid in the neighborhood, and um, he had a m- membership at this local neighborhood gym. He'd go open the back door for me. I'd slip in the back door. We'd work out, and we'd leave. We just went on for quite a while. And um, so that's where I first saw a bodybuilder. And um, he uh, – now, mind you, when I was – before I moved there, I was going to be – I was a – gonna be a cowboy a bull rider that's what my uh my goal was so um somehow along the way i became a bodybuilder and uh, i used to slip into this gym met a bodybuilder he took me under his wing and uh he took me to a real gym he said and um introduced me to uh the owner and um owner said hey this is kid i've been telling you about he might he said most competed in the summer and he looked at me and i said i have no money i said i'll take the trash out clean the place up for you if i can trade out for a membership for the summer and um, he looked at me and he goes, I tell you what, kid. He goes, you represent the gym and you win. You don't got to buy membership. He goes, if you lose, you got to work it off. Well, I've been there at that gym for 28 years now and I still haven't bought a membership. You cheap bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, that guy, uh, actually, I've become, that guy is uh, one of the best friends I have on this planet. Uh, we're in business together. We promote several fitness expos across the country. And um, it's just been a, been a total blessing. Beautiful. Well, it's, it's an awesome story. I want to go back to the very beginning, though, because I grew up on a farm, too. My dad was a, a veterinarian, and he specialized in horses. So it was a big, um, uh, big, big kind of, not so much cow ranch, but, you know, it's a, a large animal farm. So we did a lot of horse wrangling and mucking out stables and all that stuff. And when I look back now, not that I ever became any sort of athletic phenom, but just the tools that it took to become a firefighter, I look back to the manual labor on that farm. So how much do you put into, you know, how you were forged as a, as a farmhand, as, as a young boy on a farm to the success you had in bodybuilding? I think when you grow up like that, I think you learn what hard work is. Um, what really, you know, because you just, I don't know, if you live on a farm or ranch, you grew up there or you still live there, the work is never done. There's never a day when you wake up saying, oh, I don't have anything to do. There's always something to do. And it's hard work, you know, hauling hay, um, you know, building fence, uh, taking care of horses, cattle, all the things you have to do, uh, you know, chopping wood, all these things. It's always something to do and it's hard work, you know, and uh, it never ends ever. And um, so I was no stranger to hard work. I knew, I knew how to work. I knew how to work hard. And so when I got into bodybuilding, um, you know, I learned very early on that um, if you could be the hardest worker in the room and outwork everybody around you, I could win and uh, not because I was the most talented or the most gifted or the biggest or whatever, but I learned if you could outwork everybody, you could, you could, I could beat guys that I should never beat because I could outwork them. And even though they were, you know, had better genetics or more talented or whatever. And so that's something I, I, I learned very early on as a teenager. And, um, that's, that's kind of what I did through what that is what I did through my whole career. I just, I never wanted to lose a competition because 
somebody wanted it more than me or somebody outworked me. And um, I you know if I lost it for some other, other reason. But, um, you know, fortunately, um, I was able to have a lot of victories and won um, pretty much everything in the world just uh, by being the hardest worker in the room. Now, when you're sometimes you don't get there the fastest, but you will get there and you will be if you can outwork everybody around you, you will win. Eventually, you will get what you're after. Well, that's I mean, before I go back to, to your parents, I was going to ask what they did. But as you said that, I've, I see that's something that is an issue we have at the moment because we were raised on, you know, fast food and drive through this and drive through that. And, um, you know, these quote unquote overnight successes, which are complete bullshit because none of them are overnight. Um, patience. Patience seems to be a big thing that's lacking in a lot of philosophies at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, you take a, this, a lot of the, the new generation a younger, you know, even my generation and the, and the generations that followed my my generation, um, they they don't want to start off at the bottom and work their way up. Um, they want to start off at a managerial position, be the boss, making big money. Doesn't work that way. Nothing does in life, you know. Um, you know, it's like winning a lottery. It's all bullshit. You know, nobody wins a lottery. You know what I mean? It's uh, I know I know somebody that always used to tell me I was like, what are you going to do with your life? I'm going to win the lottery. I'm like, okay, now when you wake up from that dream, what are you really going to do? Because um, you know, if you're going to get anywhere, you got to work, and you know, you start at the bottom. And um, and I've said it a thousand times before, but nobody owes you a damn thing in life. And um, but you can do anything you want to do if you're willing to work for it. And uh, I think that's a hard lesson to learn. Fortunately for me, I learned it at a very young age. And I think if you don't learn that lesson early on, it becomes even harder to learn as you get older. So uh, if, if you just realize that from day one, almost that hey, this is the way it is. Life ain't fair. Life is hard. And uh, but you can you can still overcome and be successful if you're willing to put the work in. But I think a lot of people don't want to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think there's an element, because I was just thinking when you were talking then, um, of of being around animals and responsibility? Because, you know, say you work on a, I don't know, um, your dad's a plumber or whatever. Well, you might go to work with him, you know, but there's no real consequence. But when you grow up on a farm, if you don't do the chores that you're given, your animals will die. Absolutely. Those animals are totally dependent on you for feed, uh, for protection. Um, you know, a, a cowboy. What does a cowboy do? A cowboy takes and raises cattle. And uh, he raises them, he feeds them, he protects them, um, he t- nurses them when they're sick, get them back healthy, and until they get to a point where they can feed him. And uh, that cycle continues on. And if, if you take care of the, you take care of the cattle and take care of the animals, they take care of you. And so it's a symbiotic relationship. Um, I think uh, it teaches you a lot in life. You know, when you grow up around cattle, horses, things like this. You know, we had both. And um, you know, you depend on each other. You know, the horses. You know, we depended on them because we had to have them to work the ranch and take care of the cattle. Horses depended on us to feed them and, and take care of them and keep them healthy. So uh, it's a it's a same, you know, you, you depend on each other. And I think it, you learn a lot from that. And most importantly, as a young man, it teaches you responsibility. Because if you don't do your part, they won't do their part, then the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of, um, you know, ranching, what about your nutrition when you were a young boy, before you got into the bodybuilding side? Because the reason I ask... It seems to me like the way we fix a lot of the health issues that we see at the moment is simply to go back to the way we all ate 100 plus years ago. So what kind of, what did your nutrition look like when you were young? Uh, pretty much just, you know, I grew up in Texas. It was that Southern diet, you know, everything with a lot of fried food, you know, mashed potatoes, and chicken fried steak. Uh, we ate a lot of game. You know, we had deer, wild hogs and quail and doves and turkey, wild turkey and stuff. So you know, we had a lot of those things on the ranch. So, you know, we, we hunted and had, which is that, that, is the best meat you can get. You know, it's hormone, preservative-free, as healthy as you can get. But, um, you know, we fried a lot of things, you know, cream, you know, cream gravy, you know, sweet tea, you know, typical Southern living. But, you know, 100 years ago, people were a lot more active physically. 
You know, they most people had manual labor jobs. They worked outside. And so you could get away with eating that kind of food because you worked it off. Uh, the problem today is most people are sedentary. They sit behind them just like I'm doing right now. I'm at a desk behind a computer. And uh, when you do that and you keep eating like that and you don't go to the gym exercise, well, you start getting fat and you get obese and then you have diabetes and heart, high blood pressure issues, all kinds of other issues associated with that. So um, I, um, I I always ate a lot of protein. You know, I love the venison. I love steak, chicken, you know, turkey, all these things, fish, uh, a lot of which, you know, we pretty much everything came from the ranch. So um, I grew up like that. And then, uh, but, you know, a lot of it was fried and, you know, I'd eat potatoes. They were mashed potatoes with tons of, tons of uh, butter and good stuff in it. But, um, about, the, about, I guess, 16, 15, 16, uh, I met that guy in the gym. He started showing me how to train, and he kind of started uh, working me into, hey, you need to eat more food and cut out some of the fried stuff. You know, don't eat don't eat sweet tea. You know, don't drink sweet tea. Try on sweet tea. Um, cut out the sodas. And just by doing a few things like that, it made a change in my physique. And then uh, by eating a little more food, adding, you know, eating baked potatoes instead of mashed potatoes and um, eating, you know, you eat steak, eat grilled steak, don't eat fried steak and uh, things like that. It just started making a difference, especially at that age. It makes a huge difference really quick. And um, the older you get, the harder it is. But um, so I think that first uh, summer, I gained 20 pounds of good weight just by lifting weights and kind of halfway eating right. And then when I finally got serious with it, then it really, really made a big difference. Yeah, what's interesting, that's one of the first observations I made coming from England over here, is the fact that you have to label something unsweet shows that you probably have a, <laughs> a sweetener problem. You know? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, I'll be the first to tell you, I've traveled all over the world. I've been over to 60 countries, and uh, America's the fattest place on the planet. The land of milk and honey is no joke. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's um, look at how we eat. I mean, they make eating they make eating healthy so cheap. Eating healthy is expensive. It's hard. And... um I mean, there's more fat people. When you walk around the streets in America, you see more fat people than you ever see in Europe or anywhere else for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. But, and it's, it's just because it's, you know, fast food is cheap. And, um, you know, you, you see more fast food restaurants here than anywhere, you know. But I think Europe is following in our footsteps because every time I go back, I see more and more of these fast food places popping up. And that's a bad thing. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you had the same observation in Texas, but what's really broken my heart here in Florida is I've watched a lot of the uh, healthy, you know, mom and pop establishments close down, some of the gyms close down. And, you know, I always pick on Chick-fil-A because it's, you know, the one I pass all the time, but that's had a line wrapped around the building solidly for, you know, a, a solid year now. So it's, it's heartbreaking that, you know, the, this, the choices we've made or the, or certain entities have made during this pandemic have, destroyed a lot of the healthy outlets and allowed their unhealthy ones to thrive it's uh you know you can go to costco there could be two three hundred people in there that's okay but the mom and pop restaurant on the corner they got to shut down you know you can uh you can't go to church but the liquor store is open you know so it's um it's pretty uh i don't know it's a an interesting time to say the least absolutely well back to your your upbringing what did your parents do were they both actually working the ranch or did they have jobs as well yeah, so the ranch I grew up on has been in my family's um, uh, for over a hundred years since the uh, you know the uh, late eighteen hundreds when my forefathers uh, you know came there and uh, settled the place and you know you, you look at Texas and like Fort Worth in eighteen eighty eighteen yeah late eighteen seventies eighteen eighty once you went about ten miles twenty miles west of Fort Worth there was a frontier it was still wild and unsettled and um, you know um, the Comanches were still it was still their land. And uh, so it was a wild place. So uh, my forefathers came there and um, they settled the land and they uh, brought cattle. And that's when it, uh, they started to, you know, 
I guess you could say civilized land or whatever you however you want to say it. And uh, so it's been in the family for quite a while. Now, what about bull riding? What made you want to do that sport specifically? <laughs> well, so everybody I looked up to growing up were cowboys. You know, my heroes were, were cowboys. So, you know, I had some family members that were cowboys. I uh, had a family member that was a Texas Ranger. And, um, you know, so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm very competitive. And, um, you know, I wanted to, wanted to I, had, I don't think, you know, if I hadn't done bodybuilding, I would have done something. I'd been a bull rider. I would have done something just because I want to compete. I'm super competitive. And, um, you know, growing up, those are my heroes. And, um, like, you know what? Bull riding was back then, even, and it's even more so today. You know, if you were actually could survive and uh, not get crippled or broken up and you can make it to the top, you know, you can make some money and, um, you know, get, become, you know, famous. And, um, you know, when you're a teenager, you're like, heck yeah, I'll ride a bull. I'll win all that money. All the cowgirls will want me and <laughs> life, life will be good. But uh, my mother hated it because uh, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when you're going to get hurt and, and how bad. And um, so when we moved here and I, I had to give that up and got into bodybuilding, she was anything but bull riding. I think she would have been happy. <laughs> I had a bull rider, Curtis, on the show and he actually was very unfortunate. The bull bucked up and uh, the actual back of the the bull's head hit his helmet, or his head, no helmet, um, you know. And then he he had like a coup contra coup, they call it. His brain rattled around in his head, and I mean, he went from when he came round, he was actually saved by a spectator who happened to be a paramedic. Um, when he came round, he couldn't even swallow. That's how little movement he had, and he's been working his way back now. He's an incredible man, but yeah, just takes one hit on a bull, and that's it. You're done. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at 2,000 pounds of muscle and a brain the size of a walnut. And, uh, you know, they're uh, powerful, powerful animals. And, um, you know, they're, uh, they don't want you on their back. So, you know, they're mean. <laughs> they don't, you know, they'll, they get you off and they'll stomp you and gore you with their horns or whatever they can to, to get you off of them. So, absolutely. All right. Well, then, so let's, let's kind of walk me through. Did you know anything about bodybuilding really before you walked into that gym the first time? I didn't. Um, I saw a bodybuilding magazine for the first time probably a, a couple of weeks before uh, I walked into that gym, and uh, it's kind of it's ironic because the person I saw on the cover, his name was Rich Gaspari, and um, so I started following him. And back then, you know, the magazines were you didn't have social media any of that stuff. It was the magazines, and then you know it was on TV. You know, some of the big competitions like the Mr. Olympia and the Arnold Classic were on TV, but um, you know you had to you got all your information through the magazine. So fast forward many years, and actually Rich Gaspari was a one of the superstars of the sport back in the, the 80s, early 90s, and he opened his own nutrition company. And so I actually went up working with him and at his nutrition company for a few years. So um, in the late 2000, not 20, you know, 13, 14, 15, in that time frame. So a really good guy, uh, somebody I call my friend. So pretty cool. He's a, he, was, he didn't realize, I said, you don't know how much of an influence you had on my career uh, because, you know, yeah, he had a great physique and all that, but I related to him because of his work ethic, because he didn't have the best genetics but he outworked everybody. He was the hardest trainer in the sport. And I, I saw what he did. And I was like, you know what? That's me. I can do the same thing. And uh, so he had a big influence on me and in way, you know, his training intensity, his philosophy, his attitude towards, you know, competing and working out. So um, he had a big influence on my career very early on. So uh, I didn't, when I saw this first guy, um, I walked into the gym, met this bodybuilder. He was probably 280 pounds, um, the biggest human being I'd ever seen. Um, you know, I didn't know a guy could look like that. Never seen anybody that big, that muscular. And, um, you know, he came up and super cool. One day he said, hey, kid, you don't know what you're doing. Why don't you, uh, I'll see you in here every day. He goes, you're going get, to get hurt eventually if you don't uh, start doing this stuff right. He goes, show up tomorrow and I'll, I'm going to show you how to do it right. 
And um, my friend goes, he walked off. My friend said, man, you going to show up? I go, yeah. And he goes, man, that guy's going to kill you. I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, but I'm going to get big and buff. And I said, I'm going to get all the girls and I'm going to kick your ass. So um, he's like, whatever. And um, I showed up and I think I threw up three times. This guy annihilated me. But uh, I wouldn't let him see me throw up. You know, I'd run around the corner, throw up in the trash can, come right back and do my next set. And um, I wanted to die. But um, I finished the workout, came back the next day, kind of the same thing. And um, it just went on for several days. And then, you know, you start getting better. You don't throw up no more. And um, I think he just wanted to see if uh, – if I would actually do it, how bad I want to do it, or if I would quit. And uh, I think if I would have quit, he probably would have uh, been done with me, wouldn't have helped me. But um, I stuck with it and did what he told me to do, lifted, gave it 100%. And, you know, before long, you start getting stronger. You start getting, making progress, and um, you start seeing all that hard work. Um, you see the results of your hard work, then that motivates you. Absolutely. Well, the, what about your story? You said you walked in, and then three months later, you won a competition. So, was you know were you already in pretty phenomenal shape when you walked in having grown up on a farm as well uh i was uh i was always lean but i was you know i was small i think i did my first competition i weighed 164 pounds uh i probably gained 20 pounds that summer you know almost not quite um but um it's just uh it's just hard work and you know i i, I don't think i could ever get fat i've had a six-pack from the time I was a little kid to my whole life in that regard. But usually when you have that type of physique, getting lean is not the problem. It's getting big is the problem, you know. So people that – a lot of times it's just opposite. Some people might not be able to get lean, but they can get big. So, um, you know, for me, it was just putting on that size where I really had to really pay attention to my nutrition, eat a, a, a crazy amount of food to to grow. And then, of course, you know, combine with the workouts, you had to I had to make myself a, a – the, the thing about bodybuilding – it doesn't matter if you, everything's bodybuilding, whether you're trying to lose weight to get in shape, you're not trying to compete, you know, you're trying to look good or you're trying to compete, whatever, it's all bodybuilding. But if you have the knowledge and you have the middle discipline and willpower, you can do anything with your physique you want to do if you're armed with the knowledge and the, the self-discipline. Yeah, absolutely. It was funny because you said 165, I'm basically 170. And, you know, I, I've i always wanted to be functionally fit. So I got to, I did the kind of bodybuilding style working out when I was younger, like most men did. Um, but yeah, I'm an absolute horror gainer. And again, I, I know I could add mass, but it was for me, you know, luckily I got to the point where it was like strength and weight ratio was, was fine. I'm good because yeah. <laughs> I've been about 170, like the last 20, 25 years. So I've got stronger, but yeah, I mean, definitely for the skinny guys like myself, if you want to add, I mean, like, as just like you said, I mean, the, the intake has to be a lot higher than I was prepared to do. Yeah, it's a you're, you're what I learned is a very very early on was everybody thinks it's about being in the gym. Well, of course you got to lift weights, but 70 75% of it is nutrition. If you're not on point with your nutrition, you'll never get the results you want. And um you know, I started off my that first job was 164. Well, I gained over the next I don't know, 20 years, I probably gained 100 pounds of solid weight, uh but it took 20 years to to put it on there so it doesn't it's not a marathon it's a it's not a sprint it's a marathon rather and uh you know you just little 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 bit here a little bit there and over time it adds up absolutely well I, i've noticed from the outside looking in like i said i'm i'm a very uh novice when it comes to the world of bodybuilding um but the the styles i liked the ones that i you know whose routines i would pull out were you know, the people like Michael Hur and some of those guys that, that stay with a lot of those barbell movements and, mm -hmm. you know, didn't, weren't just jumping on the machines all the time. So what was kind of your actual lifting philosophy as you started progressing through? Well, growing up in that gym around the guys I grew up with, uh, my philosophy is pretty simple. Uh, it was uh, 
lift the heaviest weight I could lift as many times as I could lift it and take it to complete failure, catch my breath and do it again. And uh, repeat, repeat, repeat. And um, that just makes it, that's oversimplifying it. But uh, that's when it comes down to it. That's you're lifting as heavy as you can lift. And I lifted it as many times like I could till I went to reach failure. Uh, whatever given exercise it was, you catch your breath and do it again. And I uh, think about that if you're doing squats with heavy weight and you do every single repetition you can do until you fail, and then you got to have help putting it back on the rack. Catch your breath for a minute or two, and then you go up and you do it again. And, uh, you know, it's uh, then you just, every week, it's the same thing. Every body part, the same thing. And uh, you go home, you eat, you take uh, all the proper nutrition, you know, eating six meals, seven meals a day, uh, get plenty of sleep, and get up and repeat, repeat, repeat. And uh, that's uh, that's what it is. Beautiful. I'm going to get to sleep in a minute. That's, that's uh, <laughs> a, a subject that I like to harp on a lot because my community is so sleep deprived. Um, but with uh, with that, what I'm hearing is um, that there's nothing fancy. And what, what it seems, especially now in the whole social media world, whereas every man as dogs is kind of creating a new way of doing it. And we saw it in the CrossFit world. We've seen it in, in a lot of things. Whereas ultimately, even in jiu-jitsu or something like that, it still seems like the basics work. So did you yes. feel the pull to some of these, you know, fancy new kind of philosophies, but you, you realize that the core was just, as you said, lift to failure and rest? I never, uh, I never gave those new things a second thought. Um, I'll tell you why, because so the gym I came from, it probably has had more champions come out of it uh, in bodybuilding than I think probably the only other gym I can think of in the world that's had more champions come out of it was a, uh, you know, Gold's Gym in Venice Beach, California. Uh, Metroflex has been the greatest bodybuilder of all time. Ronnie Coleman came out of there. Uh, I came up with him. I actually trained with him for my first competition way back when I was, you know, 16 years old. And, you know, he stuck to the basics. Uh, everybody in there sticks to the basics, and it works. You can't reinvent the wheel. 100 pounds is 100 pounds. Now, how many times can you pick that 100 pounds up and lift it? You know, that's the difference. And how hard are you going to, you know, do it? So, Everybody's always trying to come up with some other way. Well, these other ways are usually easier ways. Well, when you're trying to take shortcuts, you don't get the same results. And um, that doesn't take a genius to figure out. So the people who were winning, the people who were the champions, they did it the old way. They busted their ass and they earned it. And, um, you know, the problem with Instagram and social media now, everyone's insta-famous. So um, it's uh, – I uh, – of course, I'm on social media. Who isn't these days? But – um it uh when it first came out i hated it you know somebody pulled a camera out during my workout and i ran him out of the gym because i wasn't there for that i wasn't there to be famous i wasn't there to be filmed i was there to train because i had a goal i wanted to win so anything that distracted me and took my focus off with my workout i got rid of real quick so um that being said social media is a part of business now uh, my company you know my personal my, my fitness brand and everything it's a uh, all definitely tied into social media but it's um i think social media it's good and bad I think it's done some good things, and I think it's done some bad things. Um, you know, for the bodybuilding world, you've got people that are champions that don't really get rewarded for it, you know, because magazines are dead, and it's just a Social media changed my sport completely. You know, uh, you get a lot of people that are super Instagram, Insta-famous, but they haven't really done anything. And, uh, you know, you see them on, uh, on Instagram, they look incredible. Then when you actually see them in person, you're like – that's the same person. So, uh, you know, with all the good lights and photography and filters and everything they do, uh, it's, uh, not really, uh, it's kind of a, I don't know if social media is not reality, I think for a lot of people. Yeah, so. absolutely. Especially with the lighting, like you said, my apps look so much better when there's a light above me. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Two different persons. When you shine it straight at me, mm -hmm. they disappear. 
Yep. Um, well, then, so what about mindset? So you obviously basically were at the absolute pinnacle. I mean, even you know the contested second at Mr. Olympia, you basically were the, if not one of the best bodybuilders on planet Earth. So you're doing the same, you know, routines as many people, eating the same as many people. So mindset really is is the key difference. So how 100%. how were you able to push through the monotony? And I, I know it wasn't monotony because you you had a goal but you sticking to that same routine over and over and over again what was your self-talk man if you ever wanted something in life no you wanted anything else and uh not everybody can say that but some people can if you want something so bad that the first thing you think about in the morning when you wake up is that that goal you think about it throughout your day you think about when you take a shower you think about it before you go to bed and you dream about it at night and if you if you want something that bad it's not monotony you're on a mission, and uh, failure is not an option. That was me. Um, I wasn't going to fail. I had no safety net, and um, I was going to succeed no matter what. And that just—I never even thought about not being successful. I'm like, that's not an option. And um, I'm like, I'm going to win. I'm going to be successful, and this is how I'm going to do it. And I had a plan, and um, short-term goals, long-term goals, and um, one step at a time. If you're trying to climb a mountain, you don't look at the peak. You look at the where you're going to. Where's your next step? And that's where you, what you focus on. And, um, yeah, you got a plan. Okay, I'm going to go up the east face of this mountain, go this, 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 this way. But then once you figure it out, you just start going. You look right in front of you. You can put one foot in front of the other, and slowly but surely, you get to the top as long as you don't give up. You'll, you'll probably encounter problems along the way. But uh, you got to overcome those problems. That's the same thing with bodybuilding. I had injuries. I had all kinds of setbacks uh, during that, that course of uh, trying to get where I wanted to be. But you overcome them. That's, you know, life, that's life, man. It goes back to life ain't fair. You know, sometimes bad stuff happens, and then – when bad stuff happens, you either overcome it or you quit. And for me, quitting wasn't even a thought or an option. I was going to succeed, and that was that. And when you're that motivated, you'll get up at 3.30 in the morning to do cardio. You know, you'll, you'll eat seven meals a day. You know, you'll train to the point where you throw up and your nose bleeds and everything else if you want to win bad enough. And there's, you know, if you want it bad enough, then it's not monotony. It's just it's your goal. It's your mission. And you don't failures you just don't fail and um it took me a while to get there but anything worth doing in life that's really good it takes a while to get there yeah well i heard you mention on one of the other podcasts and, and i want to ask you this because it was exactly the same internal motivation i have when when i'm training but obviously mine is a kind of life safety focus usually and it's with my own family that i'm envisioning so tell me about that when you're at the point of failure what is this who are you you know what are you imagining to squeeze out those last few reps <laughs> So um, I've been asked that question before. <clears throat> so I don't know, if anybody who's ever trained, it doesn't matter what sport it is, but if you push yourself to the point where you're about to fail, you know, your muscles are screaming, you know, that acid, lactic acid is built up and, you know, you can, your lungs are burning, your muscles are on fire. They feel like they're literally, somebody has a match to them and feel like they're about to rip off the bone. Um, but you got to do two more reps. So how do you do two more reps? Well, what is the one thing in life you probably care more about than anything on this planet? My family, absolutely. Your family, your, family, your children, your wife, your husband, whatever the case may be. Um, <clears throat> so imagine if somebody had a gun to your family's head, and if you couldn't do two more reps, they are going to pull the trigger. You'd do two more reps, wouldn't you? Absolutely. No matter how bad it hurt, no matter what it took, you'd get two more reps. And I, that, that's the kind of mental imagery I would, uh, I would give myself. I'm like, you know, I, I was be doing a set, and it'd be to the point where I basically failed. But... I wasn't done. And um, so I, that's the kind of mental imagery I put in my head. I got to get two more. And you get two more. Yeah. And you know what? Because I, I love that 
I use that myself and I, I coach a, a tactical athlete class in my CrossFit gym. Again, I'm, you know, mid-level coach at best. But what I like about the strongman movements for training first responders is that the, the skill is completely out. So, you know, if, if you're under a squat bar, like you said, you know, there's an element of failure. When you're pushing a sled, there's really not. You can always take that one step. And so I, I say the exact same thing to myself, my, my self talk, but also to them. I'm like, all right, you, you're dragging a sled. You're going backwards. That's your partner. They just went in a fire. That's your, your child. They just went down. You're taking them out of the Vegas shooting out of, you know, whatever it is. And once you put that in their mind, would you let your loved one die? And that's what it comes down to. 100%. And I think that uh, anybody can relate to that and understand that. It's just um, if you can take that type of motivation and turn it into a positive, you know, which I was able to do, I, I would take something like that and turn it into a positive to motivate me to do harder, and train harder, do more. And, um, you know, you just have to, I would always set the bar impossibly high, you know, no what it was, whether it was, I'm going to do this number of weight for this many reps. And, you know, my partners look at me like, are you crazy? And I'm like, yeah, watch me. And, um, you know, but that's, that's what you would do. And, um, you know, if you keep setting the bar impossibly high and you improve, you know, I think, I think, uh, no matter if, if you're a job or you're trying to start a business or an athlete, you've always got to improve if you want to get better and be successful. So I think what's hard is you got to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And whether it's, you know, if you're trying to step into a new business, right, that has, it's an opportunity, but you don't know anything about it. Well, that's uncomfortable when you step into a, an, an area or a field you don't have any experience in, you don't know a lot about, you're going to be uncomfortable. But if you want to improve, that's what you have to do. And it's just like me with, uh, with training. When I stepped into that gym around these guys, I knew they're going to kick my butt, right? But I knew if I could survive it, I'd get better. And I did. And it's the same thing. If you're around, if you're the top dog and you look around and you're above everybody and you're the king, you're comfortable. You know, so if when you do get to that position, then very few people can still make themselves put them in a situation where they're uncomfortable. And that's why I would use mental imagery like that, because at that point, you know, there wasn't anybody in the gym that could really beat me, but I could beat myself. And so that's what I was me against me every day. And um, so I would use mental imagery and things like that to push myself to go where I'd never gone before. So I would continue to improve. Yeah. Well, again, that's so important for, you know, my audience. So, you know, fire, for example, we're wearing the bunker gear which gets really, really freaking hot. You know, it's, it's horrendous. And so being, as you said, comfortable being uncomfortable is a very important thing. And I think what makes it harder is right now I'm sitting in my house, you know, if it gets, if the temperature drops, the, the heat will kick in, you know, in the summer, if it gets too hot, the AC will kick in. So we live a very comfortable life versus what you and I grew up in on the farm, which was a lot less comfortable out in the fields yes. and you're getting stormed on and, you know, getting kicked by animals and all that stuff. So that's what I think is is so important for for my profession and the associated professions is we have to remember that life is getting easier and easier and easier so we have to work harder to stay in that position of discomfort sometimes that's right and i think it brings to mind a good friend of mine um was a navy seal and he was talking i got to talk to him about uh you know the stuff they went through in training and basically they're uncomfortable the whole time they put them in situations where they, they freeze they're hurt they're injured they're tired they're exhausted you know, physical pain, and but they learn to be able to function and and not only function but strive when they're completely uncomfortable, and that prepares them for the situations they face. You know, once they become full fledged seals, and um, I think you know, that's um, obviously sports is different, but it's the same. You know, if you can put your learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable, you will improve and learn to thrive being uncomfortable. Then you're on your way. 
Absolutely. Well, the other side of the conversation is obviously rest and recovery. So, you know, the one of the issues we have in the first responder community is the way that the work week has devolved. Um, you've got a lot, take my profession, for example, a lot of firefighters that are working 56 hours a week minimum before they get forced to stay another one. And so over 10, 20 years, they're so sleep deprived, the body hasn't cha- hadn't had a chance to grow, hasn't had a chance to repair and a lot of the connective tissue and, you know, that, um, starts breaking down and they will get injured. It's not, as you said, it's not if, it's when. Um, so from a bodybuilder's perspective, tell me about the importance of sleep for your progress. So sleep is very important important so sleep for those you don't know that's when your body actually repairs itself that's when you grow that's like when you're a child you actually grow when you're sleeping that's why children sleep so much you know my daughter she'll sleep 10 12 hours you know if uh but that's how you grow and that's how you because when you go into a deep rem sleep that's when your body releases growth hormone all these things and that's how your body repairs itself it takes care of injuries you grow and repairs uh repairs itself so um Sleep is very important. So if uh, you're a firefighter, anything, if you're doing physical, and even if you don't do anything physical, you still need sleep, all right, to, um, you know, so your body can rejuvenate itself, basically. So um, as a bodybuilder, you know, I, I used to tell people, you probably need seven to nine hours. For me, I probably averaged about five and a half or six hours of sleep. Um, I just couldn't sleep any more than that. But I would wake up and six hours of sleep, and I feel great. Um and I'm still kind of the same way. I can get by on less sleep. So not everybody, not everybody's the same, but um, some people require a little bit more. And you know, my wife, she needs she doesn't get her eight or nine hours of sleep. It's like waking up a honey badger. So, uh, <laughs> but um, my daughter's the same way. But um, I've just never required that much sleep, and I wish I could sleep more. But it's it's super important, um, you know, because your body, if you don't get enough sleep and you're sleep deprived, your body it doesn't repair itself. Um, you have injuries, you know, muscle soreness, this kind of thing, where it becomes chronic, and eventually that will lead to an injury and possibly a serious injury. So um, it's very important that you uh, you get enough sleep. Then on top of that, the nutritional aspect of it, you know, eating proper nutrition. Especially if you're an athlete or something, some kind of a profession where you're very where it requires a lot of physical ability. You know, my nutrition I was on point with. You know, I took all the vitamins, minerals, this kind of thing. I would eat six or seven healthy meals a day. Um, you know, protein, carbs, healthy carbs, fruits, vegetables, this kind of thing. You know, it's um, I became more of a nutritionist than I was anything. Everybody, like I sort of said earlier, everything's bodybuilding is about being in the gym lifting weights. Well, of course you got to lift weights, but that's about you know 20, 30 percent of it. The other, the rest of it is nutrition and um, eating right so um super important and then on top of that i took an active approach to my recuperation um i got deep tissue massage at least once a week sometimes twice a week uh, i got mat muscle activation therapy uh once a week and then i also went to a chiropractor if i needed it um you know i thought chiropractors do have a use um i don't you know if they think they can cure cancer or something like that then they're probably quacks but um i had a really good chiropractor and you know he would uh, help me keep things in line and it made a difference so uh, this, these were the three things i would do every week and i would do it more than once a week if if i needed needed to and that uh, i had a 15-year career as a professional and um, i think that's one of the reasons i was able to stay uh, stay healthy and, and be competitive as long as i was Absolutely. Well, one thing that's interesting, I want to talk about mobility. I know a lot of times now when people have that discussion, it's it's an imbalance of, of muscles that causes, you know, immobility. And, you know, when you think of symmetry in the bodybuilding world, you think there's there's a balance. But then sometimes you do see a lot of immobility in some lifters. So oh, for sure. what what is your philosophy as a, you know, world champion bodybuilder on 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 muscle balance or and or mobility training? 
that's where the muscle activation therapy really comes into play because, uh, you know, sometimes muscle, you get an injury or something or a muscle will shut down and then it causes an imbalance. And then when you have an imbalance, that's usually when you pull something or tear something and you'll get injured. Um, you know, I'm, I live a very active lifestyle. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people don't, but, uh, in my, even in my profession, they, they're bodybuilders and that's all they do. You know, me, I'm always, I'm very active, do a lot of outdoor stuff. So, um, I always stretched, stayed, you know, very flexible and, uh, combined with the, MAT and the thing, other things I would do. Um, I always stayed in good shape. You know, I could I could run. I go I get up every morning now and I run two and a half miles in the morning. Um, you know, just because the most important muscle in your body is the heart. So, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of bodybuilders, especially, kind of don't realize that neglected a little bit. So, um, always cardiovascular training was always very important to me. Um, especially now that I'm not competing, it's even that actually takes priority over everything else. Um, as far as being mobile. Um, there's some bodybuilders. They're they're about as flexible as a two before. It's uh it's kind of sad. Uh, and they they can't run up. They can't walk up the stairs without huffing and puffing. And you have other guys that you know 280 pounds and they can do the splits. And uh, they're super. They're in great shape and they can run and jump and play sports and do all that. So it's uh I think it just depends on the individual. I think it's something um if you want to maintain that and keep your flexibility and keep your mobility, you can. If you neglect it, it's one of those things you lose. So uh, I think it just depends on the individual. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about injury, and I'd love to hear that because we had a discussion the other day about this and how you know I was fortunate enough to to be around the right people, including a chiropractor that provided me the tools to rehab my back injury without surgery or anything. So kind of lead me through the history of your injuries and how you were able to overcome them to the point of returning to the high level of bodybuilding. So I had quite a few injuries. Um, any one of them probably could have uh, ended my career. I tore my first injury, major injury I had. I was 25 years old, and um, I was um, I just gotten third at the National Obstacle Amateur. I just gotten third at the United, the Mister USA, and the heavyweights. And uh, I was one of the favorites to win the nationals, which was coming up in a few months. And I was in the gym, and uh, I tore a bicep off the bone, my right bicep detached, the tendon tore loose, and uh, it just rolled up on me. So uh, at the time, I was like, man, it just that is in my career and uh, before it even got started. So I um, went to the doctor that day and, uh, you know, he confirmed what I already knew. And he said, we'll get it reattached. So about two days later, I had surgery, had it reattached. And um, I didn't go to physical therapy. I was like, eh, I'll do it myself. And eight months later, I won the national championships as a heavyweight and turned pro. So um, at the time, I thought it was a bad thing, but it actually was pretty uh, – I think it was a good thing. It forced me to take a rest, actually. Sometimes the worst things that happen to you in life turn out to be blessings. And I'll, I'll elaborate more on that in a minute. But um, then I tore uh, a tricep off that same arm, I think, because I came back so fast from uh, from that injury. Um, that you know, your, your muscles will compensate for themselves. So if you've got a bicep injury, and your, your tricep's probably going to start overworking, compensating for the for the bicep injury, because uh, it probably wasn't it wasn't probably fully recovered and healed. And I started you know preparing for the nationals. So um, you know it's one of those things, a nagging thing that um, I just wouldn't stop. I probably if I would have stopped and rested it, um, probably wouldn't have torn. But uh, once again, I was pro, and I was getting for professional competition, and um, I didn't want to pull out of the show, so I kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and it got worse and worse. And then one day it went pop and came off when I was underneath. I don't know, 500 pounds on the, on the, on the incline bench. So, um, not a good thing, but, uh, so I had it reattached and, uh, actually at that, that injury, it was, uh, it was hanging on by like a thread. So I went to the competition, competed, uh, still did well placed and then I had surgery the week after 
and uh, had it reattached. So um, I uh, I kind of learned my lesson on that one. I was like, all right, when some when your body's hurting, it's trying to tell you, hey, back off and rest. You know, don't keep pushing because it will. You can injure yourself. And um, so the the worst injury by far was um uh, in 2011. Um, I'd. Uh, just won the Arnold Classic, which is the second biggest uh, show in the world, the Mr. Olympia. I just gotten second at the Mr. Olympia. So um, I was training for uh, the 2011 Mr. Olympia competition. And uh, the tw- 20, I'd just gotten second at that previous year in the Olympia, and then I just won the uh, Arnold Classic uh, in March of uh, 2011. Mr. Olympia was in September of uh, 2011. So this was August. I was about 30 days out. And um, I'm walking out of a building. It was a thunderstorm. And uh, as I stepped off the curb, there was uh, you know some paint on a handicapped uh, – you know, parking spots mm-hmm. and uh it was slick so my foot slipped and uh i basically kind of did the splits but my 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 right foot caught the lip of the curb and uh so that concentric force it just popped my quad right off the at the kneecap and uh it sounded like a rubber band like a loud rubber band was snap and um i went to the ground and i'm laying there and my buddy's in the truck looking at me like, dude, get up. Why are you laying in the rain? <laughs> and, uh, so I'm like, I can't. He's like, no, really, man, get up, man. And uh, I said, no, really, I can't get up. And um, my f- leg was back behind me in a weird uh, a weird position. And, you know, you, you know something bad just happened. And uh, first of all, your leg's not supposed to bend that way. And, you know, I felt it. And, um, you know, it doesn't, believe it or not, it doesn't hurt. When you tear a tendon, it doesn't hurt that bad. Um, you think it would be just excruciating, but it, it's um, it doesn't hurt that bad. And I remember I reached around and grabbed my leg to throw it in front of me because I couldn't uh, I couldn't move it and uh, I grabbed my knee, you know that muscle around your knee it, like wasn't there anymore, and uh, I'm like this ain't good and um so I tore the quad completely off the uh, off the bone right above the patella and I went to the emergency room and of course they're like oh yeah you tore your quad off the bone I'm like yeah I knew that so what do we do about this and uh, so I. Uh, I called my doctor, who uh, was actually a personal friend. I knew him. I called him at home, and he, he answered the phone. He goes, what would you do? And uh, I said, not good. And so he came in on a Sunday morning looked at me, and uh, he goes, yeah, we have to do surgery. And uh, we can do it tomorrow morning. So he sent me at like 5 in the morning to get an MRI, and I got the results. I took him to him at the surgery place, and he looked at him and had surgery, had it reattached. And in my sport, that's usually it. It's a wrap. Uh, no one had ever come back successfully from complete quad tear a couple guys had come back but they hadn't they never were successful really with a comeback they didn't do well um so i'm sitting there had surgery on monday this is a wednesday morning and this is you know by this point the forums and the internet and social media is kind of you know starting to to be a thing and everybody's writing my uh, my obituary you know the magazines you know these reporters are calling me you know and everybody's kind of like Oh, you know, what are you going to do now? You know, what's your name? Are you still going to be involved? And blah, blah, blah. And I started getting mad. I'm like, I go, no one's going to tell me I'm done. I'm like, who are these people to tell me that I'm done? And, you know, my career's over. Uh, I sit there and I start telling myself, I'm like, I'm going to be the one who decides when I'm done. You know, when I retire, it's going to be on my terms, not anybody else's terms. And I sat there and I kept reading this crap and I got madder and madder and I got to thinking. I told my wife, I said, hey, I'm going to do the Arnold Classic again. And uh, she goes, in six months? I go, yeah, in six months. And she looked at me and she said, well, you better start eating. And she went and made me a plate of chicken and rice and put it in my lap. And that's when I started preparing for the Arnold Classic. And um, I didn't know if um, – I couldn't walk, you know. You got to learn to walk again and then uh, and you got to rehab it. And then I didn't know if uh, – it wasn't until about 30 days out from the show that I knew I'd be able – I knew I was going to be able to compete. I didn't know if I was going to be, be able to compete successfully. And about 30 days out, um, 
Brian, who uh, owns a owns a gym that I've been at my entire career, he looked at me and he said, "You can do this." And I was like, "Yeah, I think so too." And uh, I showed up and I won again and beat everybody in the world. So um, it just uh, looking back on it, it was a blessing. And people said, "How can you think that?" Well, sometimes when you have terrible things happen to you in life, at the time you think this is the worst thing that could possibly happen to me. My career is over, you know, my, my dream is done. Uh, but when you overcome those things and you look back and the lessons you learn from it, they become blessings. And, uh, you know, it was one of the best things that happened to me. It taught me that, you know, if you just persevere, um, you can overcome, don't give up. You know, if you can take the pain and want to put the work in, you can overcome. And it was the most painful thing I've had to, had to overcome physically, um, you know, to rush to rehab like I did and be able to overcome it. But, um, when you did it, you know, I was like, you know what? It's all worth it. When you're the last man standing out there and you're victorious, and you look back and you're like, yeah, it was all worth it. So uh, it gave me the confidence to know I could overcome anything that come my way. And um, it um, wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, well, it's amazing because you went, as you said, you went on to win the 2012, which is incredible. Um, but I think there's a, very, there's a lot of power to that story because so many people, when they get hurt, they just – they listen to the person, the white coat, who might be phenomenal, like your one was, or might not. And then, and the ones that aren't often say, "Well, it's it's got to be surgery." And obviously, a a, a, <laughs> a quad, uh, you know, detachment definitely needs surgery. But you know, whether it's a, a back sprain or something. And then there's the meds. Oh, you need painkillers, you need anti-inflammatories, and it drives me crazy because there are so many ways to rehab a lot of these injuries without any surgery. That's yeah. I didn't. Um, I I hate meds, um, especially pain pills. I think. Um, I think I took two, you know, when I got home from, from surgery that day, that night I took one, I think the next morning I took one and I was like, I'm done with this. And, um, it's just, um, I just don't like them. And, you know, it's just, um, and then, you know, it wasn't, yeah, it's painful, but that's, it's the pains there for a reason. And especially I knew what, what I was about to embark on, that pains there for a reason. So if you start overdoing it, your body will let you know. And, um, you know, and plus it just, um, you know, when that doctor told me, I told him, I go, how long is the rehab? He goes, it's going to be a year. He said, but well, we can think about you know, preparing for another competition. I'm like, thinking a year. I'm like, there's no way. And, um, you know, but uh, so I did it in six, six and a half months. Um, I took him a picture of um, Arnold presenting him in my trophy on stage and I uh, gave it back to him and he hung it on his wall. So um, it was uh, pretty cool. I couldn't have done it without him. He did a great job of repairing it. And then, you know, then it's just, uh, like I said, it's just being, being motivated. How bad do you want something? If you want it bad enough, Go get it. Well, what did your rehab planning look like? Because obviously you did it sensibly, otherwise it would have just snapped right back off again. So so how did you kind of plan out those six months to the point where you were incrementally loading to the point of competition level? So you gotta wait about six weeks for let the tendon reattach itself back to the bone. You know, you just can't you can't rush that. It's it's gonna take six weeks for that tendon to grow back and attach itself. Uh, of course it suits you down and all that too, but you know, you gotta let it let it reattach itself at six weeks. Uh, my, my my goal was to get flexibility back. I went to a couple of uh, physical therapy sessions and um, the physical therapist looked at me and she goes, are you getting anything out of this? I'm like, she goes, you want to do it yourself? I'm, I said, yeah. And so um, I just, I did it myself. I knew what to do. And uh, so I, my first, uh, for the first month, um, my, my goal was to get full range of motion. Basically full range of motion was when I could take my heel and pull it back and touch my butt with my heel. I had full range of motion. At that point I knew I could, it was, um, I could start exercising, lifting. And uh, so I started lifting. I think the first day back in the gym, I remember I got on the leg press. I had one, I had 45 pounds on one side of the leg press. And uh, mind you, this is something I could do 17, 1800 pounds on before I got hurt. I had 45 pounds on there. 
and I could barely do it. My leg was just shaking like a schoolgirl on prom night. And uh, <laughs> so uh, and, um, I, I, I couldn't even do 10 reps. And I remember I got so pissed. I'm like, this is bullshit. And um, it's like, what I do, I got up under and did it again. And, um, you know, when I came in the next time, I got 10 reps with it. Then I added a little more weight to it. And then it's just what you do, you know. Um, I started other exercises. I, I would squat. At first, I just did body weight, you know. Being able to do a body weight squat and making that leg do its own work was quite the accomplishment at first. And then it's like, okay, then you just get underneath a bar, which is 45 pounds, and you try to do 10 reps. Then you add a 10-pound plate on each side. Then you you know, 25-pound plate. And, you know, um, then you hit a certain point where it starts to really come back and you start making big progress. And then, then, you know, then you start seeing your leg change again. It starts getting full again. It's starting, you know, get your strength back, get the size back. And um, then, you know, you start progressing even faster and then it starts to snowball. And um, so it was a, it was a challenge because, you know, when you start preparing for competition, usually your weight comes down. And uh, as you get leaner to get ready for a show, well, my weight is trying to come down, but I'm still trying to grow my leg to get it back to look like the other one. So that was a, a very tricky, uh, proposition but um it it all came together and um i like i said it wasn't until about four weeks before the competition that i knew all right i can do this and i can win and um it um it was a process um you know actually brian who owns metroflex and he was very instrumental in my career um i went to him and um i said hey i need help with this and he said all right and he told me how we're going to train it and first time in my entire life i ever disagreed with him I was like, I went back the next day and we had the whole discussion again. I was like, I don't know about this. You sure we should do it this way? And he just doubled down. I was like, yeah, that's how we're going to do it. And I said, man, it's in your hands. And um, so he trained me on legs. And um, thank God I, I made that decision and put it in his hands because he's got 50 years of experience and he, uh, he knew what to do. And um, I cussed him half the time, but uh, I knew it was all for my benefit. So and it all paid off. Beautiful. Well, I think that, you know, the two things that, that I found on my journey with the back was it was basically you needed humility, just like you said. I mean, I started with body weight, PVC pipe, empty bar, you know, training bar, 45, and then worked my way up. Um, but also pain tolerance, like you said, it sucks. And then patience as well. Like it is going to take a long time. But, you know, I think, again, it's about being comfortable, being uncomfortable. You know, there's a difference between the pain like, hey, you're not ready yet and just pain. You know, so yeah. incrementally loading as you did is exactly what I did. You can slowly begin to take the training wheels off and then you find yourself back to where, not not even where it used to be. I don't know if you had the same thing. I found myself even better than I ever was after my injuries. It took two years post-surgery. I was stronger and better than I ever was. Um, it took probably that long to get. Um, within a year, I was strong as I was before I, I had it. And within two years, I was actually had progressed beyond that and was better in every aspect than I was before the surgery. And um, I think it, for a lot of reasons, but it, uh, I think something you said is key is being able to take the pain. You know, when you have an injury like that, it's painful. And, um, you know, being able to, to make yourself, you know, just even stretching, I mean, how, you know, making myself stretch to try to get full flexibility back, it ain't fun. And uh, then when you start actually lifting, and that ain't fun either. It doesn't feel good. But, you know, you just have to have the confidence, okay, this thing isn't going to give, it's going to freaking, it's going to hold, and I'm going to make this happen. And, um, I just, uh, which again, I think it just comes down to being motivated. You know, if you're motivated enough, then you take the pain because you know, the, the goal is worth the, worth the suffering. 
Absolutely. Now, one thing that I did as well was there was self-discovery. Like, all right, why did I get hurt? What were the elements that caused the imbalance, caused the issues that ultimately got hurt? Because just like you, I actually hurt myself. I genuinely hurt myself at work lifting a patient. But so many, you know, there's like a a kind of tongue-in-cheek saying that if you get hurt in the fire service, drag yourself to the station, you know, so you can get covered for it. The reality is the job does beat you up. It just might be that you pulled your back in your garden shed or you know picking up your kid whatever it was but it's a result of your job so you shouldn't even have to play that game um but uh but but i kind of had to really take a step back and work out what i did wrong so did after your injury were there any things you identified um whether it was a lack of rest and recovery lack of mobility overtraining where you learned that lesson to the point where you weren't going to re-injure yourself you know, I wish I could tell you there was. I thought about that so many times because I didn't want it to happen again. I'm like, all right, I got to find what, what, uh, what the reason was for this, so I don't make that mistake again and have another injury. But man, my knees were good. I never had any pain. Um, you know, I, I had squatted 800 pounds on my back before, and no knee pain. Uh, you know, really flexible. Um, I it's one of those freak things. You know, I talked to my doctor about it, and he said, man, I, I see this injury all the time. I see it with young men, great a- athletes, sedentary individuals. Young people, old people, middle-aged, he said it just happens sometimes. And um, he said with you, he goes, maybe the tenon was weakened and you just didn't, didn't have any pain. He goes, maybe it was just a freak freak thing. And he goes, plus, you know, with that concentric force, he goes, your quads are so strong. And he goes, with you, you know, moving, sliding out like you did, and then the quad tightening, trying to stop it, it just was enough to rip it off the bone. So um, I don't know. I wish I, I wish I, I never really came to – a conclusion why it happened other than like i said sometimes bad stuff happens yeah and and am i right in understanding that all your injuries were out of the gym correct uh, i had one i had one injury uh when i was talking about you know i was doing a, my tricep it uh it tore i was under the you know, i was doing incline bench press really heavy but uh all the other injuries were outside the gym yeah so. exactly and that's the thing like you said it, the gym is a controlled setting so when we're out there whether it's the fire ground whether it's you know spinning your kid around a room i think if there's a weakness that's normally where it where it's found Mm-hmm. All right. Well, then I, I want to talk about transitioning out, and then I want to tangent to to another area that I do kind of visit often. But in my community, um, in the military, you know, in law enforcement, and even in the sporting world, I'm, I'm aware of now. If, if all someone is identified with as is as their profession, their sport, some men and women struggle when they transition out when they when they retire whether they're hurt whether they they make that choice especially if they don't have something to transition into so kind of lead me through you know from from the pinnacle to where you decided that you were um i was going to tap it out it's a horrible example when, when you when when you felt comfortable with what you achieved and you decided to transition to something different um i turned pro 2001 and i did my last competition in uh, march of uh, 2016 um Actually, getting ready for that competition, I didn't know it was going to be my last competition. Um, you know, I talked to some of the guys that were older that had, you know, had already retired, and you know, I remember asking a couple of them, and I said, "How do you know when to when to say when?" They go, "You'll just know." They go, hey, "Not something anybody can tell you." They go, "Don't let anybody tell you you're done if you're not ready. Don't do it. You'll know." And um, I did that last competition, and I was 41 years old. I had competed way longer than I ever dreamed I would compete. I thought, okay, by my mid thirties, I turned pro at 26. I thought, okay, you know, if I could make at first, I thought if I could do five years, that'd be incredible. You know, um, I competed for 15, which is way longer than the average pro, you know, makes it. And, um, I was very successful and did everything I wanted to do. Um, that last show I did, um, 
age gets everybody right. So, um, you know, you get in your forties, your body changes and it ain't for, it ain't positive change. So, uh, that's the first time I'd ever seen any kind of negative re changes in my physique and my body. And, um, I did everything the way I always did. And it, it just, things weren't happening. I didn't look the same. And, uh, um, you know, a little bitty minute change at that pro level will make a big difference in your placing. And, um, uh, I did the competition. I failed a fifth place and, uh, which I'd never, uh, had happened before. And, um, I was like, I just, I knew. And I got back to my room that night and I told my wife, I said, that's it. She goes, you sure? I go, 100%. I said, this is, this ain't going in the right direction and there's nothing I can do about it. I said, it's just, you know, a number of things were happening. I was eating more food than ever. I couldn't keep my weight up. And uh, these are things I talked to some of the guys, you know, that were already retired, older than me, same kind of thing. And they said, you know, when it gets to that point, you'll know. And um, I just knew. And so I, uh, that was it. Um, I didn't, um, I didn't leave with a bunch of fanfare or all that, but I was still um, top five in the world. And I got told my wife, I said, I want to go out on top on my terms. Just like, you know, whenever I got hurt, I was like, I'm not going to be forced out or, you know, told to quit. I was like, I'm going out on my terms, still on top and one of the best in the world. And it's a good place to brought off into the sunset. Uh, as far as the transition, I'd been preparing for a transition for years. Um, I always had a second, you know, another job besides being a bodybuilder. Uh, I was fortunate to be one of the guys who could you know, make a living at it, but we always I had a gym for a number of years in my twenties. And then me and my wife opened up a logistics company, freight forwarding company we had for 10 years until we sold it. And then, um, when I transitioned out of, uh, out of bodybuilding, um, opened up a wiki cuts, my beef jerky company with my partner, Scott James. And, uh, so it was a smooth, smooth transition right into that. So I think a lot of guys and girls, they, they struggle when they, they retire because, um, especially if it's not planned, um, they don't have anything to go into. And I think then that's, uh, it's hard for them. You know, I think a, a lot of athletes, you know, they, especially if they're really good, um, they, all the attention and the fanfare and the fans, all that, and all of a sudden it's gone. And I think they struggle with that. Um, you know, um, that didn't bother me at all. I'm still involved in the sport. I still travel, you know, promoting, um, the sport and I've got several expos in Dallas, Houston, going to have one in open some other parts of the world here soon. Um, and so I'm still involved in it very much still, um, you know, part of a gas, better bodies, you know, international sportswear company, um, very much involved with as well as a nutrition company, Apollo nutrition that I'm still involved with. So I'm still a very much part of the sport, even though I have a life that's separate from it too. Beautiful. Well, I want to get to wicked cuts next, but just before we do, um, as as a whole in bodybuilding is there is there an element of um you know issues in mental health because I mean, like i said all the other professions that that i'm associated with with other professional sports i hear you know there is an addiction problem there is you know sometimes even a suicide uh, element what about the world of bodybuilding i think so i think um i think the sport of bodybuilding mirrors the, the population in general um, I mean, show me a sport where there's not an addiction problem. Show me a sport where there's not a depression problem or a suicide problem. I think that's in every sport, uh, in every, every profession. Um, you know, we just had one of our, one of the guys who's one of the top, you know, guys of the, of our sport. He just, uh, he just passed, um, a suicide and, um, you know, I don't know the whole story, but uh, you never know the demons somebody might be carrying, even though they might from the outside look like they have it all. You never know what kind of demons are fighting on the inside. So, um, absolutely, man. There's addiction problems. There's um, depression problems. Um, it's not everybody, and sometimes it surprises you. Sometimes people that they put a good front up to the world and everybody around them, but inside they're they're hurting. So, I think that's a definitely uh, definitely something that affects bodybuilding, just like it does football and baseball and basketball and every other sport. Um, <clears throat> I think that's just a 
I wish I could say, okay, this is why it isn't bodybuilding, but I think that's just a people thing for whatever reason. I think sometimes, and I think the biggest problem is, you know, bodybuilders, you know, they, they got that, uh, they don't want to reach out for help. You know, and I think that's the biggest, biggest thing. If they reach out for help or had somebody in their life that was, uh, they could confide in, then, uh, you would have some of the tragic consequences and endings that we have. Yeah. Well, and especially with your profession, because I think a lot of the, the, especially the men that we were raised with in Hollywood were bodybuilders, you know, the Stallones, the Schwarzeneggers, all, all those, you know, the Van Dams. Um, and so, you know, those were portrayed as men don't cry, rub some dirt in it, which as we all know now as real men is complete shit. But, you know, that was, <laughs> that was what yeah. was told. So I can see how, yeah, if you actually find yourself one day fitting that mold and being that person, if you subscribe still to that philosophy, how you would maybe feel unable to actually be vulnerable and reach out and ask for help. I think that's true. I, I think it's men, men in general. Uh, we don't want to make things wrong. You know, I mean, most men I know, um, yeah, they're not going to make something wrong, especially if they got something, you know, an emotional or mental, something going on, depression or something like that. They don't, you know, they're not going to admit to it for, for the most part. So, um, and, um, I get that, but that's the wrong thing to do. You know, if you've got an issue that's eating you up, sometimes you need a little help kicking it and beating it, you know. It's okay to go to somebody you trust or reach out and say, hey, man, I got an issue, man, I need some help with. You know, if you're fortunate enough to have a true friend, that true friend will help you. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad I asked that. Thank you. So transitioning then, so circling all the way back to a cattle ranch in Texas. So tell me about uh, Wicked Cuts. So Wicked Cuts, we launched uh, – this May will be in business for three years now. Um, so what I did was uh, a partner, Scott James. He was uh, the owner and the founder of BSN, which was one of the top two largest uh, sports nutrition companies in the world uh, back in the day. So I knew Scott from from my bodybuilding competitive days. Um, he sold it to a big multi, uh, I guess, Columbia, big uh, multinational firm. And um, he, uh, we were on a plane and we ended up sitting next to each other. And he said, hey, I always wanted to, you know, do something with you. He goes, we get back in town. Let's, uh, let's talk. And he had moved his family from South Florida to the Dallas Fort Worth area here and got back and he called me up and we went to lunch and started talking. I thought, okay, he probably wants to do another, you know, sports nutrition company again. And, uh, he said, no, what about beef jerky? And I'm like, beef jerky. And I kind of sat there for a minute and I go, man, I don't know anything about beef jerky. I know I like it. I go, you know, my family used, my dad used to make it when I was growing up and I still like it, but I don't know anything about it. And he says, well, we're going to learn. And uh, it goes back to what I said before. You got to learn to to progress and to do something. You got to put yourself in a situation you're not comfortable and learn to be comfortable in it. And uh, so I knew nothing about beef turkey other than I liked it. And uh, But we dove into it, and it took us a little while. But we got it off the ground and got it launched, and uh, we're doing really well. So this last year, uh, we were very blessed in 2020 when most people, a lot of people were out of work and suffering and a lot of bankruptcies. We actually grew tremendously and uh we're uh, well on our way beautiful well, i heard you you saying about this so so what what made beef jerky so flexible versus uh supplements um well so when you talk about sports supplements especially like you know bodybuilding supplements you know protein powders pre-workouts bcaa's things like this amino acids um how many of the people actually take that stuff three percent of the population five percent maybe maybe if that I don't even know if it's that much. So you're selling to a very small segment of the population. Your demographic is not very big that you're you're selling to. And that, that market is very saturated. Last time I checked, there was over a thousand supplement companies just in the US. And that's not counting Europe and Asia and South America and the rest of the world. So it's a very uh very saturated market and you're fighting over 
a very limited amount of people. So beef jerky, who doesn't like beef jerky? Everybody, right? So uh, especially in the U.S., Canada. So um, and it's something you can put it anywhere. Where a sports supplement, you're going to put in a nutrition shop or a gym or something along those lines, or you know, online now. But um, with beef jerky, put it anywhere. You put it in a hardware store, put it in a convenience store, put it in a grocery store, uh, put it in a gun store, put it in a sporting goods store, put it in a you know CVS or wherever. It goes anywhere because it's a, one of those universal things that it fits anywhere. Everybody likes it unless you're a vegan. And it's uh, there's so many things you can do. And beyond beef jerky, you can do turkey jerky, chicken jerky. Uh, we got bacon jerky. Uh, we're going to do some stuff like elk and I think bison, you know, coming up. We're looking at doing some exotic stuff like that. We also have beef sticks, and we just came out with some seasonings. You know, the seasoning, you know, because it's a we put seasonings on our jerky to flavor it. So we uh, said, all right, you know, why don't we come out with some seasonings to complement the jerky? So we've got our own line of seasonings now out, and I've got some other innovative things we're coming out with this this year in 21. So um, it's been a blast. Uh, I've uh, I've loved it. It's a new challenge and learned a lot of new stuff, and um, it's been a uh, been fun. Beautiful. Well, jerky is very uh, versatile for us because I mean, if we're running call after call after call, you know, if it's something that's required refrigeration, you know, even if you've made yourself a meal, it's going to taste like shit after a few hours. But, you know, jerky nuts, some of those things are great go-to snacks for, you know, responders that are stuck in a vehicle for hours on end. You know, and a bag of beef jerky is way healthier than a Snickers bar. Um, you know, and plus it's got a shelf life of a year. So, uh, you know, get it and it's not going to go bad overnight and um it's uh you know there's no uh, no nitrates no added nitrates no preservatives added to it and um all healthy stuff so it's a great alternative to uh you know some potato chips or something beautiful well obviously one of the one of the sources of of meat and poultry that you know we see in our shelves are you know the, the factory farmed animals so tell me about the you know the animals the cows and the other animals for for your uh jerky so we have grass-fed beef. Uh, like I said, there's no no hormones, no nitrates, no added preservatives or anything like that. No MSG. So uh, it's very healthy, uh, very healthy beef and chicken. Uh, we also have bacon jerky, which actual strips of uncured bacon that we've turned into jerky. So uh, the maple bacon and the applewood. Man, you gotta try it. I don't know if I sent you any, but I've got to send you some. So one bite, and it'll make you slap your mama. <laughs> She's in so. Portugal. It's going to be a hell of a slap. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's a you know, and I think that's a, that's something that um, like with the bacon. And I wanted in our it's a little bit different too. It's um our jerky is a different cut of meat. A little bit. It's a premium craft jerky. It's not um so consequently what that means is we use a better cut of meat than what normal jerky uses, and uh, it's a little more tender. You know, it's uh you don't have to break your teeth off trying to get a piece you know ripped off uh, a little bit tender um, our flavors are very distinct you know that's something we agreed on day one was you know it took us a while to get to launch because i wanted every flavor to be unique and be distinct and i wanted to be a little more tender than than normal what normal jerky is and um you know with the bacon that's not some something that uh most people have ever heard of is bacon jerky so um you know people turn to the bag like oh this is real bacon it's just we made it into jerky and um it's um i think once people realized what it was it became one of our best sellers and um because we've got hot stuff you know carolina killer it's uh, if you look on youtube there's hundreds of carolina killer videos people taking the challenge so it's a it's a carolina reaper peppers scorpion peppers and ghost peppers because we had volcanic jalapeno beef jerky and people were complaining it wasn't hot enough so we really took it up to the next level and uh you know people turn red they sweat it's uh it's pretty funny watching uh watching the reactions of people trying to eat the whole bag and um so that's been really uh that's been fun and uh, i actually turned out to be our best seller and why i have no idea i've had two pieces of it when it first came off the off the uh, plant there and uh 
that was it for me. <laughs> it's the same <laughs> but, for me. I'm terrible but, with spice. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I can't handle the heat, but uh, some people love it, man. And uh, so it's just been a fun experience overall, you know, getting some new stuff and uh, being able to innovate. And like I said, we got some new products coming out this year. We've got some new beef sticks coming out. And uh, so I'm very excited about uh, some of the stuff we're doing for 21. Beautiful. Well, we were connected by Ryan Parrott. So tell me about how you were introduced to him and then your relationship with Sons of the Flag. So Ryan Parrott was a Navy SEAL. Um, I think he did eight or 10 years on the SEAL teams. Uh, he was deployed overseas multiple times, served in combat. And um, the way I met him, I had a good friend of mine who was um, blown up in Iraq and uh, burned severely. Um, I think 80% of his body, he sustained life-changing burns. Uh, he eventually lost a, lost a leg at the knee. And, um, you know, talking to him, you know, what, what people don't realize about burn survivors, they're not burn victims. Either they're burn survivors. There's a difference. And um, is it's not, okay, you go to the hospital, get your treatment, have some surgeries, you're out, you're done. It's a recurrent thing. It's a lifetime of uh, going back and have surgeries. Uh, there's a lot of issues they have burned, you know, people that have been burned severely have the rest of their life. And there's a very limited number of burn surgeons actually in the country, a very limited number. And that's a problem because that limits the, the care that these individuals have. And um, I don't want to misquote it, but there's tens of thousands of burn victims, burn survivors rather, in the country. And if there's only, you know, couple hundred surgeons so um that's a problem so scott and i uh, you know we've been blessed and have a lot of success here at wicked cuts and we want to support a charity and um basically it's either we support a veteran charity or a children's charity and um i said you know let's let's sort of support some of these uh these men and women that have uh, you know sacrificed so much for us because you know like i was telling you earlier freedom isn't free and we have what we have because a lot of men and women made a lot of sacrifice for us. That's why we all sleep for the most part safe in our beds at night and don't worry about some of the things you worry about overseas because these men and women step up and, you know, pay the ultimate sacrifice sometimes so we can keep our country and keep our freedoms intact. So, um, he, uh, talked, I talked to my friend and he, uh, I said, Hey, I want a charity that, you know, the money goes where it's supposed to go. I don't want to give to one of these charities where, you know, 80% of the money goes to pay, salaries to these people and the CEO is making half a million dollars a year. That ain't really my idea of what a charity is supposed to be. And he told me, he goes, sons of the flag, talk to this guy, Ryan Parrott. He goes, he's a real deal. And I said, all right. So I called him up. We talked, met, and um, I was like, all right, let's do this. So what we did was we came out with a flavor jerky, traditional Western, had a little camouflage bag. It's got, um, so actually the camouflage is little cows. Oh, I didn't see that because you sent yeah. me a bag. I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So, um, got the Sons of the Flag, uh, the logo on the back. So, and as you can see on the front, it's a uh, 100% of the proceeds were donated to Sons of the Flag, not profits, but the proceeds. So, um, we partnered with him. And, uh, so everything, every cent we made from the sale of, um, traditional Western and that flavor goes to Sons of the Flag and to help, uh, help these men and women that have, um, you know, had horrific injuries. Uh, Ron himself, I guess, was, uh, blown up, I think, on his first, uh, first deployments and um i guess he told me the story of his nickname was birdman and um if he, he actually just recently told me how he got the name he uh he was uh they hit an ied and uh he was in a humvee and he was a uh, i guess the gunner on top and it blew him to the turret you know 30 40 feet in the air and uh of course you know seals being seals they named him birdman <laughs> and uh he uh he was you know got i think caught a lot of shrapnel got burned but uh he was able to save uh, save some of his teammates in the in the process, even though he was injured severely. And um, he recovered from those injuries and went back. And um, so uh, Ryan is a, just an amazing story himself. 
and the things he's done and sacrificed. But uh, he got out, and uh, he realized, hey, these guys need help. And so not only do they provide money for the surgeries and rehabilitation for these people, they also go out and they get they recruit people to be burn surgeons. These young men and women that are doctors, they recruit them and uh, help pay for their their you know med school and specialized training so they can become burn surgeons because there's not enough burn surgeons in the in the country. And that's something that's um, you know very much needed you know in your profession especially. And I don't know how many firefighters a year get get burned, but I know it's a uh, and police officers too. So not only do they treat just military veterans, but they also help first responders, police, and fire firemen. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for for you know what you're doing because I mean I think that um, you know altruistic business model is is incredible. And I have I've had police officers that are, one Jason uh, Schechterly was horrendously burnt. He was actually hit by a taxi. The taxi driver had, had a seizure and hit Jason about eighty miles an hour. Um, and there was a bunch of firefighters happened to be on that same corner, that same intersection, so they're able to drag him out. But I've had you know many firefighters that were burned as well. But uh, yeah, I mean that's the thing. You get this man who's done this incredible service comes out and then wants to do more. You've got yourself, you know, that come out and you want to do more. And that's what I love about this project is all these great humans that are around, bringing them all together. And obviously, you know, you guys knew each other already, but using. Using a business to do good in the world as well is fantastic. So thank you for for what you're doing. No, it's not. I appreciate that, but it's thank you to the men and women that were have given so much. And um, I think um, I think that's the least we can do. Um, you know, they uh, you go and they fought, they did something because they believed in it. And um, it's, I think that's the least we can do to, you know, say thank you. We appreciate you because I think the average the average person um walks out around the day and they don't. Really, I don't think the average person really uh, realizes how many people has sacrificed and are still sacrificing as we speak because, you know, we still have troops committed overseas. We have, you know, police and firemen every day. They put their lives in the, the way of harm and get hurt to save people they don't even know. And um, think about that for a minute. You know, you risk your life to save someone you know because you're a fireman, but you risk your life to save someone that you don't even know. It's just that's what you do. That's pretty selfless. Yeah, no, I mean, we all love what we do, but it's, it's true. I mean, you know, it's absolutely, you know, the case. And, you know, I, I do this project because I love the men and women I serve alongside and, and the other professions too. So before we get to some closing questions, people listening, how can they find Wicked Cuts and, and purchase? Well, go to wickedcuts.com and uh, we've got a uh, beef jerky, chicken jerky, turkey jerky, bacon jerky. We've got beef sticks, we've got seasonings. Um, we ship direct to your door, so go to wikicuts.com. Uh, you can always message me uh, at the branch Warren on Instagram and Facebook, and uh, direct message me. I get a lot of messages, so I, I will get back to you, but it usually takes a little while before I get around, catch up. But um, I usually try to respond to everybody. So uh, if you use the code uh, branch twenty five, you know that's a, excuse me, lightweight twenty five is a new code. Light lightweight twenty five, uh, you get twenty five percent off your entire purchase of Wicked Cuts. So uh, on wikicuts.com. Beautiful. And that's cuts with a Z for everyone listening. Or a Z, yes. a Z should I Z. say? <laughs> Z. Yeah. C-U-T-Z, wikicuts.com. So. Beautiful. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions I always like to ask my guests. Um, the first one is, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there is. Uh, I recommend the Bible, you know, because even if you're not a Christian – if you just live the life that it takes you to live, that's a good life, right? So um, I realize that not everybody is a Christian. I am. But um, if you just learn the lesson that it teaches you, then you'll live a good moral life. 
Beautiful. Yeah, and I agree 100%. I think a lot of the, you know, religious doctrines all agree, you know, don't be an asshole, pretty much. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just uh, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Exactly. You know, I think if everybody did that, the world would be a lot better place. Absolutely. All right. Well, then what about uh, a film? A film? Uh, my favorite film? Yes. Uh, probably Braveheart. Beautiful. That's when the uh, Australians saved the Scottish. Is that right? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a great film. What about a documentary? Any of those you love? <sighs> Apart from Train Insane, which is your documentary. <laughs> so let me put that in there. Yeah, um, I, uh, I'm a big history buff. So uh, I watch all kinds of uh, boring history stuff. It drives my wife crazy. But um, I don't know. I have to think about that one. Beautiful. All right, we can come back to that. Um, all right, next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Well, Ryan actually would be great. Yeah, he's uh, he's been on already, but we're gonna yeah, do another uh, one. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, um, I think Crispy would be good too. Um, he's uh, I think Crispy would be great. Um, is that is that the friend you were talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the world so, champion powerlifter, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I reached out to him a while ago and, and wasn't able to get him, but uh, yeah, we'll have to try and revisit that. It's been a while uh, now. Um, I can probably throw you a couple other people. You know, uh, I think uh, that would uh probably be willing to do it beautiful yeah i know one and i've heard you talking about training with him but um i think ronnie coleman will be a great one too because people hear about the the bodybuilding side but it'd be interesting to hear it from the law enforcement first responder yeah he uh, definitely ronnie was a for those of you who don't know he was a time mr olympia uh one had more victories than anyone in history he beat arnold's record and uh that's who uh i was for you know when i walked into the gym that first day uh, that's who was in there and i got to train with for uh for my first competition. So he was a, a police officer in Arlington, Texas for a good portion of his career. And uh, he's, uh, I think that'd be, that'd be a very good guess for you. Yeah. And how's he doing now? I know he, he's had quite a, a road to recovery after his injury. Yeah. He had a pretty horrific injury um, after he retired. Uh, it had nothing to do with uh, when he was competing, but um, he's, uh, he's the most positive person you'll ever see. Um, he's, um, He's in a wheelchair, I think, right now. Um, he can walk somewhat as long as he has, uh, has support. But um, he's uh, he's the ultimate warrior, man. Literally, he's battling back, and uh, he's the uh, most positive person you'll you ever meet. And um, I have no doubt he'll uh, he'll overcome this and get back on his feet. Yeah, I hope so. I truly do. All right. Well, then, last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, and we'll talk about the website as well. Um, what do you do to decompress? Decompress. Um, Man, I love being outdoors. I love to hunt. I love to fish, uh, especially hunt. Um, so um, I uh, every year after when I'll be done with the season, I would usually head off to Wyoming and Alaska or New Mexico or somewhere and be out in the woods for ten days, two weeks, and no no phone, no social media, no computer, no TV. And uh, that was uh, that was my way to decompress. Just kind of get away from everything and chill. And uh, you know, if I got something cool, if I didn't, I was alright too, because uh, my my thing was just to chill and relax you know so being out in the wilderness for me is uh, the best thing there is absolutely it's funny that it's the same theme over and over again exercise nature and family oh this, this is what i get all the time yeah beautiful it's uh i love it um you know i go to alaska i've been to alaska many times and um you know just being out you know that's a true wilderness and um you know you're 150 miles from this road and um uh, just in world, true wilderness and it's uh it's cool. You know, you look up and you can, I think most people don't realize that live in the city, how many stars are in the sky until you're somewhere like that. 
and then you, you look up and you're like, wow. So, you know, I, I grew up in the countryside. I remember growing up with that, but you live in the city long enough, you kind of forget. And uh, plus just silence. You know, you get out in a place like that, it's just quiet. And uh, that's priceless. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing I didn't ask you, I just want to put you slip in here before we let you go. So you had this high level competitive, you know, um, journey. What do you do now as, you know, someone in their 40s to foster longevity as you start to age as an athlete? Um, I still train. I'm still very active. I get up and um, I run about two to two and a half miles, five days a week. Uh, I train, uh, still work out. Uh, not at the same level I did when I was a competitive bodybuilder. Um, you know, my weight, I'm not near as heavy as I used to be. There's no reason to, for that because I'm not going to, I don't eat seven meals a day and I don't, you know, lift all that super crazy weight, but uh, still stay in shape, stay very fit. Um, like I told my wife when I retired, I said, I'm going to get in shape for life. You know, I was, I was in very good shape for my specific sport I competed in, you know, but now that that's over, I just want to be, uh, be in shape for life, stay fit, be healthy. Uh, that's my, my goal now is just be healthy, you know, because, um, you know, I want to live long enough to see a, uh, see the woman my daughter grows up to be and hopefully uh, meet my grandkids. Beautiful. And what about nutrition? Is there any changes that you've made as you left the actual competition side? Uh, you know, bodybuilding is probably one of the healthiest lifestyles you can live. Uh, competitive bodybuilding is not. Um, so I'm still a bodybuilder. And I think if you eat that bodybuilding diet, it's super healthy. You know, I mean, you're, you know, you're getting a meat, good meat, uh, good carbs, fruit, vegetables, this kind of thing, uh, juices, water, all this. Uh, I think it's, um, I don't really know if I could eat any healthier than I do really. You know, I eat at least four good meals a day. Um, so I feel great. Um, actually I feel better than I felt in a long time. So I'm, I'm not killing myself in the gym every day. I'm not so sore and, um, I feel good. Beautiful. Yeah, it's funny. I've had um, you know some of the strong men and women on the show as well, and you know, that that line, especially with with the older generation of strong athletes, where you know they they were winning the events, but they were incredibly unhealthy. Eddie Hall's a perfect example. So so hearing yep. that post competitive transition from performance to wellness is always interesting. Yeah, it's um like I said, competitive bodybuilding, competitive powerlifting, a lot of competitive sports are not healthy. Um, but you know, bodybuilding in general is, it's a healthy sport. You know, if you're actually just doing it for wellness purposes, you know, lifting, doing cardio, eating really good, um, what more can you do? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well then we talked about, um, wicked cuts, but I know you have the website as well. So tell me where else people can find you online. Uh, online, let's see, um, we're in several hundred nutrition shops across the country. We're in pilot flying J we're in vitamin shop. Um, we're, um, well, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. I'm about to be in a couple other big stores, but I can't let the cat out of the bag just yet. So um, let's see. Uh, I'm missing some. I can't think of them right now. But we're in a lot of uh, – we're in a couple thousand locations across the country as well as our online presence. So uh, having a lot of success. And this year it looks like we're going to about to be in a couple of really big accounts and really uh, really blow up. Beautiful. And then you have the website with the training. So where can people find that? So uh, the Branch Warren um, – so uh, you can go to www.thebranchworn.com. And so I've got merchandise on there. You can get a T-shirt, get a picture. Uh, I've got online training. Um, I don't do personal training in person, but I do do online training. And uh, if, uh, if you meet the criteria and I'm willing to work hard. So uh, I don't do a lot of it. I take just a few people because I just don't have the time to you know, have 30, 40 clients. But I do take a few people every year and try to help them out, usually competitive athletes that are you know, wanting a little direction, a little, guide, little guidance. 
So I don't do a lot of that though. I don't really advertise it. So beautiful. Well, Branch, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, you know, Ryan connected us and, you know, you obviously, you know, one of the the greats when it comes to bodybuilding, but getting your kind of human perspective, how it circled around to, you know, now being in the, the meat industry. Um, it's been a really awesome conversation. And then obviously what you're doing for our, you know, first responders and military by supporting Sons of the Flag is, is incredible too. So thank you for such a great conversation. Well, thank you for having me on and thank you for what you do and uh, your service. And uh, hope, uh, hopefully we'll circle back around and uh, have an interview, get on the show in the future.